Okay, to start off, I have something I want to show you. It's in this box. Just re recently, I had to change the brakes on my, on my van, so I wanted to show you my dirty old brake pads. There they are. They're lovely. So, whenever I do this job, I always think the same thing. I think about how this was my first real automotive repair. I mean, besides changing oil, you know. But this was the first time, the first job that I did, and I thought to myself, wow, if I, if I mess this up, uh, my car <laughs> might not stop. <laughs> might just keep rolling and then cause a wreck. And then also the brake job makes you dirty. But I am, I am prepared. Look at this. Got my wipe, my wet wipe here. You can't preach with dirty hands. You gotta have clean hands. Anyway, so I think about that every time I change brakes. I think about how it was my first real job, uh, repair job on a car. That was back in high school. And over the years, I've done a lot more car work. I've changed lots of brake pads. I've uh, changed, oh, I forget what I've changed, I wrote it down. Window motors, gas tanks, oil pans, CV joints, rear differentials, I've done a lot of work. And then the big mama job came, at least for me. The big job came. I adopted a van that needed a new head gasket. And so if you don't know, this job requires a lot of work, especially for my van. What I had to do was drain the engine of all fluids. I had to unmount the engine so that I could rock and move it around to work on things. I had to remove probably about 30 different components in the right order, get inside the engine, and then replace this gasket that probably, it cost about $10, and it was so delicate that if I dropped it, it'd probably have to go buy a new one. So put that gasket in there, put it all back together, come around, and start the car very slowly as I prayed because I didn't want to hear that, that socket that I left in the engine clunking around. <laughs> so you can imagine, like th this, if I, if I had messed this up, it would either have cost me like $2,000 or a new engine or just a new van altogether if it wasn't worth fixing what I might have made worse. I had similar feelings doing this big job as I did when I did my first brake job of, oh man, I could really mess this up. And so you can understand why I was a bit nervous. Well, by, at the end, somehow I got it all back together. It runs fine, I'm still driving it. And I was thinking about this and thinking, really, it wasn't all that different from the brake job. The brake job, once you get the wheel off, it's a couple bolts, you replace the pads, put some grease in some key places, and then put the bolts back in. And so with the head gasket job, it was the same thing. Bolts out, hardware out, hardware back in, bolts back in. Just a lot more of that. It was just layered. And so when you take a complex job like that and break it into pieces, it's really quite simple. There are, are, are so many things in our lives where we do this, this uh, where we get distracted almost by the complexity, where we, we make it way bigger than it is. We get afraid of it. We're afraid of the complexity. We all have stories like this. 
We all have things that are intimidating us and look straight at us and say, you can't do this. You're gonna mess it up. And the mission of Jesus is very similar. We all have fears that keep us from just stepping wholeheartedly into the mission Jesus has for us, of reaching out to the people that are close to us. We all have similar fears. Probably my main fear is fear of rejection. I don't know if you have that particular fear as for what might hold you back from just being gung-ho for the, for the mission that Jesus gives us. Maybe it's fear of rejection. Maybe fear of the complexity of the mission. Maybe it's fear of getting dirty. Break jobs will get you very dirty. Fear that you are going to totally mess it up and cause a wreck. So often we allow fear to just freeze us as Christians to where we think, oh, I just, I just need a little bit more learning. I just need a little bit more confidence and then, then maybe I'll go and I'll reach out to my neighbor, I'll reach out to my friend. And so we're here on Sundays and we listen to maybe Christian radio or we read books on trying to become a better Christian. But Jesus has a different kind of learning for us. He has a different kind of learning, and we're gonna talk about that this morning. So turn with me back to our passage, Matthew 9. And to give you some context here, Jesus is just starting his ministry. He hasn't been doing this very long, being out in the public and teaching is what I mean. He hasn't been doing it long. He hasn't even called all 12 of his disciples yet at this point. And here we see one of the first times that the Pharisees basically confront him publicly on something they don't like about what he's doing. All right, so with that in mind, let's get back in. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So here's Matthew. Matthew the tax collector, the writer of what we're reading right here. He's a tax collector, which basically means he is a wealthy dude. He can command whatever income he wants, and he's got Roman soldiers there with him to enforce it. As people are paying their taxes, he decides he wants more. The Roman soldiers, soldiers say, give him more. And so he can just take basically whatever he wants. So Matthew here is leaving that life of wealth and security and he's following Jesus, choosing a life of poverty and uncertainty. Let's keep going. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So why is there a party all of a sudden at Matthew's house? So Matthew is throwing this little feast for one, because he's, getting, he's leaving it all. He probably has some food he needs to use up. But two, he's inviting all of his friends to be able to come and meet this Jesus who has changed his life. Pretty cool. Let's keep going. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? To the Pharisees, this was such a big offense. This was such a big deal. 
the Pharisees worked hard to follow the rules. And one of those rules they thought was, someone else's sin will get on me if I eat with them. They thought that eating with sinners and tax collectors would make them dirty, unclean, unacceptable to God. And tax collectors were another level of sinner. So like I said about Matthew, Matthew could just command whatever money he wanted. All the tax collectors could. All the tax collectors did. And so the Pharisees not only saw them as sinners, but saw them as the enemy. They were taking money from the Jewish people and giving it to the Roman Empire to support the oppressors. So they were another level of, of sinner. Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So in my head, in my head I hear the, the Pharisees asking, are you kidding me? You're telling me, us to go and learn? Like, we know the law like the back of our hands. We follow God so closely, it hurts. And then we make up, up some more rules so it hurts even more, okay? <laughs> Who are you to tell us to go and learn? We know this is judgment uh, from the book of Hosea against the Israelites not following God. We follow God. Who is this Jesus telling us to go and learn? Sure, 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 sure. That was still the Pharisees <laughs> in my head. <laughs> the Pharisees, of course, missed the point. They totally missed the point, and we know that because we see how they're described for the rest of the Gospels, for the rest of Scripture. So how about you and I go and dig in and try to find out what this point is? What was Jesus trying to say? So follow me to Hosea 6.6. 6. This is the verse that... Jesus quoted, Hosea is a prophet who lived in Israel at the very end of their time in the promised land before they were exiled. From the beginning of God's relationship with the people of Israel, he warned them. He said, you must follow me to receive blessing. If you don't, if you worship other gods, if you don't follow my law, I will remove you from the promised land. And so warning after warning after warning, it was time to come through with what God said, but not without explanation. That was Hosea's job. We're going to explain why you are being exiled out of the promised land. So that's what uh, the, the greater context of the book. So let's look at it. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So first, you might see a little difference here. Jesus said, I desire mercy. This verse says, I desire steadfast love. Is Jesus changing scripture? Well, no. Mercy is definitely inside contained within the idea of steadfast love. But I mean, if there was someone who could change scripture, I'm pretty sure Jesus could. Uh, you know, he had the authority, but um, he's not this time. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God 
rather than burnt offering. So let's focus on that steadfast love phrase for a minute. If you scour the Old Testament, you will find steadfast love come up over 190 times. And out of those 190 times, 180 of them directly refer, directly speak about the missional and faithful goodness God shows to man. Let me say that one more time. Out of 190 times, 180 of those directly refer to God's missional and faithful goodness to man. That is the idea of steadfast love. Steadfast love contains the idea of mercy, God's constant mercy, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, his love, his patience, and his refusal to abandon his people. Even when he's about to exile them here, exile them out of the promised land, he won't abandon them. He doesn't abandon them because of his steadfast love. In contrast, how many times does it come up in the Bible positively thinking, uh, talking about man? It comes up like half a time. You might think, oh, 180 to 190, that's 10. What about this other 10? Well, it's not positive for sure. The one time that it's kind of positive is when King David, the second king of Israel, before he was king, he was best friends with a man named Jonathan, and Jonathan is saying, when you become the king, show me, remember to show me steadfast love. Unfortunately, Jonathan died, he didn't get a chance to. But all the rest of the times that it comes up in reference to man, it is either proverbial, as in you should strive for steadfast love, that kind of a statement, or it's judgmental. You have not met the standard. You do not show steadfast love. And this is one of those times in Hosea 6. So I know you all are Hebrew poetry experts, right? All of you. So let's put on our Hebrew poetry hats. We're going to talk about that for a minute. If you don't have a Hebrew poetry hat, we have some guest service folks going to walk down the aisle. Just raise your hand. We can get you those hats. Okay, we need a hat right here. Another one over here, please. Just kidding. No hats. That would be cool if we had them. Okay, but I do know you guys know a little bit of English poetry, right? And so how does English poetry work? Some of the simplest patterns in English poetry is we like to rhyme our words, and we like to play with syllables and lines, all right? So here, here's an example. I wrote this myself. I like to rhyme. I do it all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Or how about this one? Go fish, go. Don't go slow. What does this mean? I do not know. <laughs> what does this mean? Okay, so back to Hebrew poetry. The simplest patterns that Hebrew poetry follows includes rhyming ideas. They don't really rhyme words or play with syllables so much. They rhyme ideas. They like to, what, what would be perceived to us, repeat themselves. But they'll do it from a different facet or a different angle. But they like to rhyme ideas. And this is a perfect example of that. So let's look again at this Hebrew 6.6. 6. Let's pull out these rhymes. The second one is easy to see. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So sacrifice, burnt offerings, easy to see that. Very similar things. But the first one, a little different. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. These two rhyme. These two are parallel. To me, like, I, I, I wouldn't see this right away. I mean, steadfast love is an action. It's something that I am faithfully doing. I am going and I'm loving. I am showing faithfulness. But then the knowledge of God is something, is something that I, I read. It's something that I hear. And then it's something that I know. It's cognitive. It's, it's hard to see the rhyme. But what Hosea is saying is that knowing God requires action. And you can tell that the Israel people who were being exiled did not know God because of their actions, because of their, because of their actions. <laughs> Let's keep going. It doesn't stop here. Hosea continues to link these two ideas together throughout his book. Hosea states that the main issue that God has with his people is this issue. So turn a page over. Let's go to Hosea 4, verse 1. Maybe it's two pages for you. <clears throat> Hosea 4, 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. God is saying, I have a bone to pick with you, and here it is. Listen up. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. Three things that rhyme very closely. There's no faithfulness, steadfast love, or knowledge of God. These ideas are so close that they're interconnected that they rhyme together. So let's go back to steadfast love. The Hebrew word for steadfast love, love, steadfast love, I'm sorry, I need a little bit of water apparently. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed. Hesed, it's a fun word to say. Everyone say it with me, ready? Hesed. Did you say it often? Tommy, make them say it. Make them say it, Tommy. So I can't really do justice at describing Hesed. I have not done a lot of studying on it, but um, we have a video, I have a video that we're gonna watch uh, from a guy who has done a little bit of study on it. His name's Paul Wright. And so let's go ahead and watch him explain Hesed love a little bit to us. One of the key things at the heart of that was discovering the biblical idea of Hesed love. The idea of Hesed love, it combines two ideas, the idea of love and commitment. So in other words, my love for you is not based on you. It, it's a setting of the will to love, regardless of how you respond to me, and even, remarkably, of how I feel. I'm fascinated with the idea of Hesed love because it offers several promises. One is that it, it can uh, unmask the frames that the culture has uh, given us where we unwittingly breathe kind of the air of this world. 
One of the things in modern culture that is just sort of the spirit of the age is the preservation of freedom. But the very nature of love is to narrow the life. It limits the person. And that does a couple things. One is it just strips your ego. It's just self dies in the activity of love. But probably the best thing is that it draws you into union with Christ. And you get to taste God in the activity of loving. And that's probably the, one of the weakest parts of our tradition if we've lost this sense is that you get to know God through the activity of loving. And by far, that is the best part of love. That, that is why these rhyme. Because like Paul said, like Paul the speaker in the video, you get to taste God in the activity of steadfast love. You get to know God through the action of being loving, of being faithful, of being committed in your love to people. This is a new idea for me. It's not a new idea, it's thousands of years old, but for me, I haven't thought of love like this. I mean, I love because I know God wants me to. I love because I know it will honor God but to think of it like, I am going to go love so I can know God. I am going to go show faithfulness so I can taste God. That is a new idea. And I am enjoying uh, chewing on that this week. So I don't know if that's new to you. But the fact that I get to know God through the activity of steadfast love is pretty neat. So what is my point? What is the point of Jesus in Matthew 9 when he's telling the Pharisees, go and learn? So if I had to, if I had to take it and I had to paraphrase it in Tysonese, then this is what I think J uh, Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees. Pharisees, you have no love. You don't know God. You are committing the same sins that your fathers did to be exiled from the promised land. You think you know God because of your law following and your sacrifices, but your actions show otherwise. You do not know God. Friends, do you think you know God because you're here this morning? Do you think you know God because you put money in the offering? Do you think you know God because you listen to Christian music and you follow the rules? But does your life show it? Do you love people? Or do you complain about people? Do you hold grudges against people? Do you avoid people? Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I like to think, I like to imagine that God uses fatherhood to, to teach me with my own kids. And something that I, I hate is when my children tell me they love me, but then consider their siblings someone who can be pushed off someone who can be disregarded, someone who is an enemy, 
someone they don't have to respect, someone that they don't have to love. Friends, are you that sibling? Do you tell God, I love you, God, but that person, your other child, forget them. If you want to love God, you must, you must love people. If you want to know God, you must love people. 100 times out of 190, steadfast love is directly talking about God's missional and faithful goodness towards people. Within the phrase steadfast love, God uh, is contained the idea of God's constant mercy, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, his love, his patience, and his refusal to abandon us. Do you know God? Can I see it in your actions? Do you love people so that you can taste him? Jesus calls us to eat with sinners, friends. Jesus calls us to reach to those next to us that we consider filthy, that we think are worthy of rejection. How can you love steadfastly this week? What relationships do you need to go to and mend? What relationships do you need to go to and, sh- and choose to show love? Pursue that love so that you can taste God and know God. Let me pray for us. God, all throughout the Bible, we see your mission for people all over it. God, you are relentless in your pursuit of us. You are relentless in your love toward us. You never stop loving us. You never abandon us. You show steadfast love. God, we do not want to be these Pharisees who strive after rules and strive after trying to earn your acceptance. We have it in Christ. Show us what love is. Teach us how we can love the person right next to us. God, we quietly ask you to teach us what love is. Thank you, Jesus, for your son, for sacrificing for our sin. Amen.